0: You're listening to Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catani, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Homeless Millionaires, based on Galatians 4, 4-7, recorded on Sunday, December eleventh, two 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. But I want to go to Galatians 4 today. We've got a great passage I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Galatians 4. We're going to be in there uh, for quite a while this morning, and I think it'll be helpful if you're prepared to follow along and to actually look at the text. Um, as you're turning there, I want to tell you a quick story. In 1997, a homeless man living on the streets in Bolivia inherited $6 million. A homeless man inherited $6 Million dollar, you can imagine how this would radically change his life. I mean, it would change my life to inherit that kind of money. That's slightly more than I have saved up right now. But imagine going from homeless to a millionaire. What's an interesting story? This man never actually saw any of that money. Let me tell you a little bit of how he got to this point. 40 years before this happened, he married a woman whom uh, he, he very quickly separated from. They did not get along, and they separated very early in their marriage, but they never divorced. This man went on to become addicted to alcohol and drugs and resigned himself to a life of homelessness and spent all of this time with, with no contact with this woman whom he was married to. Sometime in the 90s, she inherited a small fortune. In 1997, she passed away, and he became the lawful heir to her $6 million. But when the authorities came to find him and to tell him of his great fortune, he assumed that they were coming to arrest him for one of the many crimes he had committed throughout his life, and he fled from them, and he never received his great inheritance. This is a sad and tra- tragic, even a remarkable story. But the reality is, is that this, this is a great illustration of how most people live their lives without ever coming to Christ to receive the far greater inheritance that he offers. So with that in mind, let's go to Galatians 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. encourage you to follow along. This is the story of Christmas. The reason for all the stuff that we normally think about in mangers and babies and angels and all of this stuff that we associate with Christmas, those people were, were just simply eyewitnesses to God doing exactly what Galatians 4 tells us God did. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to redeem us. That's what Christmas is all about. These folks got to see it with their very eyes. We see it with our hearts. So I want to take a closer look at this passage in Galatians 4. Let's just break this down phrase by phrase today. The first thing we see is the timing of God's actions. It says, but when the fullness of time had come. Well, who determined this was the fullness of time god did and and why did he determine that this was the fullness of time that's a great question why why did god not provide the solution to sin or provide the way of salvation in the very beginning why not immediately after the fall or if not then, why at some later date when, when God appeared to Abraham and said, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Why not then? Because even in Abraham's lifetime, he just saw the beginning of that promise. Or why not when Moses brought the, the, the Israel, Israelite slaves out of Egypt and this miraculous parting of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea. And now it's time to head on to the promised land. Why not then? Perhaps a few hundred years later when God finally gave them the king that they wanted. And they, they inaugurated King David, the one who, whom God would say, This still is not him. He will be like this man in some ways and he will come in the line of David. Why not then? How about when Elijah was on, had that epic showdown on Mount, Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? You might remember this story. Israel had gone after false gods. And they had, they had, they had all of this worship of these false gods that was just... Just a stench in God's nostrils. And so God calls Elijah to take all of these prophets of Baal, these false prophets, onto the Mount Carmel. And they have this showdown to see who is really God. And they both offer sacrifices. And they say, the, the one whose God responds with fire, he is the true God. And of course, it's the God of Elijah. That would have been a great time for God to reveal his plan of salvation But in God's sovereign mind, it was 2,000 years ago. After all of that had happened and after all of those men and women had lived and died and generation had come and generation had gone by, it it was at this moment in history when God said, this is the fullness of time. The first thing you see on your map there is that God's patient sovereignty ensures that everything happens at just the right time. Here's the great thing about God. He never misses a deadline. And he never jumps the gun. He does everything at just the right time. His timing is absolutely perfect whether we can see whether whether we can see that perfection or not and whether we would even agree his timing is always just as it should be. This is an important thing for us to remind ourselves of. Maybe not so much with the story of Christmas because, I mean, honestly, for us, it really doesn't matter if it was 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or, or 500 years ago. As long as it happened in time for the message of the gospel to get to us, then we're happy. So maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal to us when God had done this, but... To those who lived and died waiting for the fulfillment of that promise, it was a very big deal. Yet we see God's patient sovereignty. In our own lives, we need to recognize that God's timing is always perfect. And beyond the perfection of His timing, we, we need to have this confidence that even while we wait for the fulfillment of some promise that perhaps He has has made to us that he is always at work. God has never wasted a day. He has never wasted even a second of your life or in all of human history. He's always at work. He's always working for your good and for the good of all of his people. He doesn't waste a moment. We see this lesson again and again in the Old Testament history. In fact, if you look even at the time in between the Old and New Testament, what's often referred to as the 400 silent years. It's called that because for, for generations, the prophets of Israel had been prophesying. They had been speaking the voice of God to the people. But for 400 years, between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus, there was no prophetic word. God, it seemed, was silent. And perhaps people began to wonder what happened to this God who promised us a Messiah. What happened to this God that said he was going to come and rescue Israel? Because during that time, Israel was defeated by one nation after another. Well, even then, history teaches us that God was working. And we see that we, don't, I, we can't know the mind of God and know why that moment when Jesus was born was the fullness of time but we can, we can certainly see things looking back that God was doing to prepare for the birth of His Son, the coming of Jesus. At that particular time in the world, there was an unusual peace in that, in that region called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. The Roman Empire had so thoroughly conquered her enemies that there was now some, a, a, a relevant level of, of, of peace There was now a system of roads that was unknown to the region before this. There was a common language, the Greek language, so that when Jesus was born, this message could spread faster than it ever would have spread at any time before that. When the fullness of time had come, in your life, God will do what is good for you at just the right time. He takes into consideration things that that you and I can't even begin to think about. Things that have never even crossed our minds. Perhaps you've seen his wisdom at how he has worked in your life in the past. Let that give you confidence for the future. That God's patient sovereignty ensures that everything happens at just the right time. So that's the when. That's when God does this. What, What is the what? What is it that God does at the fullness of time? It says in the very next phrase God sent forth his Son. Through Jesus, this is the next thing on your map. Through Jesus, God takes action to redeem us. This world is so broken by sin, yet God has a plan to redeem. God is not a passive God. He is a God that intervenes in his creation. This is part of his character. We all know passive people. People who just allow bad things to happen around them and they do nothing to stop it even when they can and when they should. God is not like that. He is not passive in any way. Patient but not passive. God intervenes in his creation. He intervenes in human history, and he sends forth his son. God, from the beginning of time, had this salvation plan. That's why, in the Garden of Eden, when God is is handing out punishments to Adam and Eve, and then he gets to the serpent, and he says, I'll put enmity between you and this woman's offspring, And you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. From the very beginning of time, God had this planned. And he was just patiently working his plan. For generation after generation, patiently working his plan until the fullness of time comes. And now it's time for God to send forth his son. Some people think God, if there is a God, he, he appears to be just kind of sitting back and letting this all happen. Why is there evil in the world? Why do so many bad things happen? Well, they come to the conclusion that God does not care, or that God cannot fix it, or that God doesn't know what to do. That is not the biblical God. That is not the God that we read about in Galatians 4 who sends forth his Son. God not only acts to redeem us, but he acts in this most sacrificial and personal way possible. He sends his son. Think about that. You might suggest that God could have saved us another way. I would entertain that idea. In theory, God could have done a lot of things. It was a tree that got us into this mess. God could have planted another tree the tree of salvation. And those who come and eat of the fruit of this tree receive salvation. God could have done anything He wanted. He could have built an island and said anybody that makes it onto this island can be saved. God could have sent care bears on unicorns with magic dust that they sprinkle on us to bring us salvation. He could have done it any way He wanted. But He didn't do any of that. The last one would be cool though, right? Because our problem runs much deeper than any of those ways of saving us would address. You see, our problem is not just guilt before him. Our problem is relation. Our problem is that God created us to know him intimately. He created us, as we're going to see in a moment, to actually be his children, and you don't, you don't instead, we, we've become his enemies. You don't fix that kind of relational rift without getting personally involved. If I were to do something to greatly offend you on a real personal level, and sent you $20 in the mail and said, I hope this makes up for it that that does not acknowledge the the relational level that this problem exists on and so god takes this personal and he does he does one of the most well he does the most costly thing he could do he sends his son his only son we have sinned against a holy god who created us to know him we have rejected him and put him off and so he comes at us with everything he has at the fullness when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son he gives his best to accomplish our best he gives his best to achieve our salvation that tells us something about god it tells us something about his character about who he is about the value he places on this relationship. My stepson, Chase, he's 16. He wanted to sign up for, for Hulu, that stream, the, the TV streaming service that you can get, kind of like Netflix type thing. It's $13 a month. Why well, I didn't want to pay it. I already paid for Netflix. He wanted, he, but he wanted it, though. I said, well, if you'll pay for it, you can have it. Uh, but he needed my credit card. So I give him my credit card information. He signs up for Hulu. I get the first bill. I say, dude, you owe me $13. He says, okay. He goes to his room. He comes back out a minute later with, with the, the most tired, worn out uh, dollar bills you have ever seen in your life. He very clearly selected the worst money he had and chose to pay his debt with that one of these dollars, I don't even think a bank would take it off of you. So I laughed, and I took his money, it spends the same, but I held on to that one dollar that was really bad, and next time he needed money from me, (laughs) that was the first thing I gave him, and we, we got such a kick out of it. But God shows his love for us in that when it came time to pay our debt, listen, our debt, not his. He owed nothing. He had no debt to pay. This, if you will, would have been no skin off his back to just let this thing go. When it came time to pay our debt, he gave his very best. Christ Jesus, his only son. What does that tell you about him? Well, let me tell you what it should tell you about him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. You don't have time to turn there, but it'll, it'll be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along. 18, it says, knowing that you were ransomed. We'll, we'll come back to that word ransomed in a minute and what it means. Because God had to rescue us from the trouble that we got into knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God's response to our need is to send his son so that with the precious blood of Christ, it says in 1 Peter 1, with the precious blood of Christ, can you think of anything more precious than the innocent blood of Of God's Son, Jesus. There's nothing. Man, my kids mean the world to me. And their their blood is precious to me. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compare to the price that God paid to ransom us. This was the debt that had to be paid. Why? Why? because of our sin. Our sin got us into this mess and it got us in so deep the only way for us to get out was for Jesus' precious blood to pay our ransom. The next thing on your map is the greatest price ever paid to ransom someone from a certain death was the precious blood of Christ. How true this is. All the more reason to worship Him and that's exactly what the next part of our text says. We've answered the when, we've answered the what. Now here's the why. Here's the next thing that the Galatians 4 says. To redeem those who are under the law. To redeem those who are under the law. Why Christmas? Do we celebrate Christmas because babies are cute? Because poor people matter to God? Because angels appearing to people gives us goosebumps? Or do we celebrate Christmas because God sent forth his Son to redeem us, to save us, to ransom us, to bring us back, to rescue us? God did this because we needed redeemed. We needed redeemed. We needed a Savior. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're a peasant or a king. It doesn't matter if you're a virgin or a prostitute. It doesn't matter if they don't have room for you at the inn or if you own the inn. We all need a savior. But this redemption came at a very high price, the suffering and blood of God's Son. Let's not forget that at Christmas Christmas is not just about Jesus being born into the world. It's about Jesus being born into the world to suffer and die for our sins. And this is God's great mercy. You might say, well, I didn't didn't ask him to do that. He went too far. He got carried away. If he had not done it, your only option would be hell. Hell. If he had not paid such a high price, then he could not redeem you back. And you might think, well, why does my redemption cost so much? That's an excellent question. That question is is answered if we keep looking at Galatians 4. We We are not only redeemed, but we are redeemed for this purpose. Look at what it says next. So that we might receive Adoption as sons. So the when is the fullness of time. The what is God sending forth his son. The why is to redeem us. And why does he redeem us? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And let me tell you real quick why it says sons. Because I want you ladies to rest assured that this is speaking to you as well. Paul, in Galatians, is using an illustration. He's talking about a young man whose father has passed away and left him a great inheritance. And in order for him to receive that inheritance, as a young man, he's placed under the guardianship of someone else until he becomes of age. And so he's talking about sons and this potential inheritance. But ladies, the Bible makes it very clear that God just the same adopts you as his daughters. So let's think about what this means so that we might receive adoption as sons. God redeems us not just to bring us back to a state of not guilty, not just to bring us back to your sins are forgiven, now you're okay before God. Our redemption is so thorough that God brings us the whole way from Enemies, guilty before him, deserving of death and hell, all the way into his family. It is not merely about the forgiveness of our sins, but about our adoption into his family as his children. That's why it says in John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of of God. God gives the right to become his children. I want to talk about that more in a minute, but let me just stop right here and point out something that's going to become relevant when we get to the closing point today. This is the first time in our text that there's any activity on our part even suggested. We see in this text, God sends his son. We see that the son redeems us. Then God sends the spirit. And then the spirit confirms our sonship. And we become heirs, which is, again, totally dependent upon what the father has done to secure for us an, in- an inheritance. So in all of this passage, it's one thing after another that God does for us. Man, he's a, he's. He's, he's active. He's busy with this plan of salvation. He's working all of this out. He's doing all the heavy lifting. He is doing everything necessary for our salvation. But one thing. What is the one thing that we do in this passage? And it's there in John 1.12 also. Receive receive we are to receive adoption as sons and daughters i think that's a great metaphor because if you think about a child that's being adopted he or she really does nothing it's the parents who wish to adopt that child that do all the work they, they do all the paperwork, they pay all the fees, they, they make sure that the, the hearing happens and all the legal processes that need to happen, all of that is on the parents. The child just simply has to receive it. He or she just merely needs to embrace that this is happening, that this is being done for them, and so it is with our salvation, What do we have to do in John 1.12 to become children of God? Receive Him and believe in His name. Those two are, are, are very closely related to each other. We receive and believe. God does everything else. This is a beautiful plan. And it's been God's plan from the very beginning. How did He so patiently endure all of the nonsense that happened for thousands of years of human history because he could see ahead that once his plan was fully unfolded in Jesus Christ, how beautiful this would be. And he'd just be, he'd just be adopting one right after another, lost folks, redeeming them, bringing them into his family. And then we see next in this family, or in this passage, this family has perks. Lots of really good perks. And, and this might be hard for some of us to understand because our earthly families vary, vary greatly. Some of us come from good families where we've received a lot of benefits just by the sheer fortune of the family that we were born into. But, but I understand many of us don't. Some of us come from families where you just struggle to think your mom and dad maybe even loved you. Or maybe you don't struggle to think it. You know they didn't. They used you or abused you or took advantage of you. And when they were done with you, they just threw you aside. If, if that's your experience, I, I just want you to use your imagination this morning. That God's family is nothing like that. That when you become a part of God's family, he takes care of you and, and you receive full benefits of being in his family. And it's a good family. It's, it's beyond belief how good this family is. God's children receive such benefits so that nothing on earth compares. Sam Walton's kids have nothing On us. You know the Waltons, right? Sam Walton, the guy that started Walmart. Every every year, when they come out with that, the richest uh, people in America list, half of the top ten are Sam Walton's kids. They're all billionaires. They all became billionaires by the inheritance that their father left them. They have nothing on you. And there are two things that our text tells us this adoption accomplishes. For us, these are on your map. Let's look at them together. The first is this Through Jesus, we become legitimate children. Through Jesus, we become legitimate children. Where is this at in Galatians 4? Right there in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When you receive adoption, As a child in God's family, you become a full-fledged, legitimate child. How do I know this? Because it tells us right here, those who are adopted by God, that's all who are saved. Everyone who receives and believes. Those who are adopted by God into his family. God sends the spirit of his son into their hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is a combination of the Aramaic word for Daddy, that's Abba, and the Greek word for Father. And the reason that's important is this was not a normal way to address God in the Bible or among those first century Jews. This is not how they spoke of God. When did they start speaking of God this way? Well, let's look at where else this this, um, phrase is used in the New Testament. We see it in a parallel passage in Romans 8. We'll get to that in a minute. But the most significant place that we see this is coming from the lips of the only person in the history of the world who ever had the right to call God by such a personal, intimate name. His Son. And Jesus uses this way of addressing God in His most intimate moments on earth when he's in the garden of gethsemane praying before he goes to the cross his greatest moment of need how does he address god he says abba father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what i will but what you will I call my dad a lot of things, some of them not real great. <laughs> sometimes I call him Big Fred, not out of disrespect, but just trying to that's what people call him here, and i'm trying trying to work through our relationship in a professional manner, so sometimes I use the name that everybody else uses for him but when we're when we're being intimate as father and son. I call him dad. Jesus, in the garden of Gethsemane, when, it, when he's, he's being intimate with his father, in his moment of greatest need, says, Abba, Father. My daughter Reese, she's 10. She loves to have friends over. She, apparently, we're not exciting enough for her. Go figure. She loves to have friends over. As soon as one friend's out the door, she's planning the next friend that's going to come over. This is just the way her mind works. It's always about who's coming over, what are we going to do next. She, she loves to have people over. So as a result, you know, she has friends that come over quite a bit. Some of them have even been confused as part of our family. They're over so much. And, you know, but when, when her friends come over, there's certain benefits to being in our house hopefully similar to the benefits they have at their own house. But when, when one of my daughter's friends comes into our house and she's under our roof, if she's hungry, she can eat our food. If she needs to relax, she can sit on our couch. If she wants to kick back and watch our TV, if she wants to play with, with our toys, that's all there. That's for her. She can do that while she's in our home. If she gets upset, as 10-year-old girls tend to do on a regular basis, if she gets upset, my, my wife will comfort her. God forbid if any threat were ever to arise, I would protect her just like I would protect my other kids. But at the end of the day, it's very obvious she's just enjoying those benefits as a guest in our home. And I'll tell you when this becomes most obvious. Because if you were to see our family out together, and Reese had one of her friends, and you didn't know our family, and you weren't sure who, who were my kids and who was just a friend tagging along, I'll tell you when you would know. When my kids talk to me, they call me Daddy. None of her friends do that. But when my kids talk to me, they address me, Daddy. When Jesus talks to the Father, He says, Abba, Father. What's amazing about this is that Galatians 4 tells us that our adoption as children is so thorough, it's so legitimate, it's so complete that God sends His Spirit so that we call Him Abba, Father. He has adopted you As his child. And he says come into my family. And I want you to address me the same way my son addresses me. Because I'm now your father. And just like I respond to him. I respond to you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even when it's hard, I'll be there. And you can rest assured that your Abba Father is on your side. He will move the universe to rescue you, to help you, to love you, to show you his grace. You are his child. The second thing we're told this adoption accomplishes for us is that we become heirs with Jesus. We become heirs with Jesus. It says right there in verse 7 so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is another sign of our complete adoption into the family. You have been written into the will. And he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to take you out when you misbehave. He has written you in. Jesus' inheritance is your inheritance. I get, I'm afraid to speculate what that means. But I think that it means much more than we ever can acknowledge. We, I don't, we don't become like Jesus in his deity, and so that's where I get, I don't want to speak things that are perhaps blasphemous in any way, shape, or form, but I think we need to stretch our minds further than they normally go when we think about this. Listen to what Romans eight sixteen says. This is that parallel passage I mentioned where Paul says some of the very same things that he's saying in Galatians 4. It says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's that crying out, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit in you reminds you, convinces you, convicts you that you are His true child. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. If you're Expectation is that in heaven you're going to be a lot like you are now, except you won't have pain and you won't cry and everything will be happy. You have not taken your imagination far enough to understand what it means to be adopted as God's true child. I think that C.S. Lewis takes us a place that we probably need to go when he says, You have never interacted with a mere mortal. Then he says, the dullest and most uninteresting person you ever speak to will one day be such a magnificent creature that if you were to see them now as you will see them then, you would be tempted to worship them. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You haven't seen it. You've never seen anything like it. You've never heard anything that will compare with. In fact, you can't even imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Our inheritance in Christ is unimaginable. But I think we do well if we dwell on what we do know. He's adopted us as children. We are co-heirs with Jesus himself. In some way to be glorified with him. Our future in Christ. This is the perspective we're called to live this life in light of. What I mean by that is, if you, were, if you knew that you were going to inherit $100 million a week from now, would you live life differently for the next seven days? Who's not going to work tomorrow? <laughs> if you were going to receive such a radical, life-changing inheritance that you knew would, would just totally change you, For the rest of your life. Would that not change how you live now? That's exactly how we should live. Because we will one day and one day soon inherit something far greater than money. Our future in Christ is so beyond anything we've ever experienced here on this earth. That it ought to change the way we think and the way we live That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, I I know it's getting rough right now, but I'm thinking about my inheritance. I'm thinking about how I'm going to live for all of eternity once this is over. And it's changing the way I think, and it's changing the way I live my life. If this is the case, if you believe this, It should radically change the way you view this life. And ultimately, it should change the way you live this life. But instead, I think many Christians live life like this is all they'll ever have. Their imagination has not been engaged enough by Scripture to get them out of this temporary existence that we're in now which will one day be replaced by something infinitely greater. And so we live like this is all we'll ever have, and so i got to get what I can get now, and I've got I to live it up as much as I can right now, because this is all the life that I know. When Scripture tells us, get your mind past the grave. Get your mind past the next 50 years. Can you imagine eternity as God's child with this eternal inheritance now live your life now in light of that and then many non-Christians I think are hiding from the God who wants to give them all of this he wants to adopt them maybe that's you today I want to remind you of that story that I told at the beginning. Remember the homeless guy who inherited the six million dollars? Never saw a penny of it. Because he thought the very people who came to give him this good news were there to harm him. And if you've been running from the gospel because you think God wants to make your life worse, I've got good news for you. You're about to become very, very wealthy. God is ready to whenever you are, to adopt you into his family, to make you his child. To put his spirit in your heart by which you will call him by the same name as his one son, Jesus. That's the kind of God he is. He's not coming to hurt you. He's coming to save you. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to redeem us that we might receive adoption as sons. So, what about you? Are you ready to receive and believe? He's done everything else. All the paperwork's completed, the costs have been covered, the judge says, This is good. Let's go ahead with this. He's waiting for you to receive and believe. Will you do that today? And then I want to speak to the Christians. Christians, are you living life in light of your future? Are you living like you're a child of God with an eternal inheritance? and that nothing on this earth can change that, at least not for the negative, perhaps for the better. Are you living your life in that light of eternity? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.